Christians. We are going to jump in today. If you have a Bible, you can go to John chapter 2, the book of John chapter 2. I want to uh, start a brand new series with you, and I got to tell you, I'm a little bit nervous today, just a little bit. It's a good nervousness, right? It's not too much, um, but it's enough that I feel it. I like stepping up here and having a little bit of uncertainty about how things are going to go. And as we start this series called You Asked For It, that's a little bit of what I feel. Because back in the spring, I had this idea that I thought was good. I'm not sure if it's still a good idea or not. But back in the spring, I kind of felt like, you know, what if we actually surveyed our congregation, surveyed social media, and said, what questions do you have? A lot of times when I'm crafting sermon series, I'm trying to guess what your questions are and think about how does God's word step into that. So I thought for this summer, since so many people are in and out, let's just create a series that says, what are your questions? Let's figure it out. Now, here's what I don't know about the results of this survey. I know that we got like 10 cards or so back with your questions. I had a little, like about 10 uh, cards with feedback on them. Apparently, many of you don't have too many questions or you're not even sure where to start or there wasn't room on the cards. So I don't know. This is what I don't know. I don't know if 10 different people submitted questions or if one of you did 10 different questions and just disguised your handwriting. I'm not sure what that was. So the reality is, if it was one person with 10 questions, this may not be helpful, but I hope that it is. What I do know about the survey that we did is I absolutely love the questions that we received, and I'm scared of them at the same time. So these are great questions. We've condensed them into several topics. So over the next several weeks, here are some of the things we're going to be talking about. This week, we're going to talk about how does God reveal himself? How can we know God? Right? The second question is, why is the Bible, such an old book, so hard to understand? The third question is, how do we share our faith in a culture that doesn't even want to talk about it? The fourth week, which is the week of July 4th, you're going to love this. We're going to talk about America and Christianity and the mess that is politics and religion. So I'm going to offend all of you. And some of you are already like, I'm away that week. Sorry, it's the 4th of July. I just gave you your out Okay, I just gave you your out, but I'm telling you, it's going to be a good conversation. We're going to talk about who gets to go to heaven. Some of you asked, do I get to go to heaven? Do my loved ones get to go to heaven? Some of you asked, do my pets get to go to heaven? Like the essential concerns. We're going to say, what does heaven really mean? We're going to do a week where we say, God may forgive, but how can we? We're going to talk about forgiveness, how hard it is. Either forgive yourself, forgive others. And then the last week, we're going to talk about why do innocent people tend to suffer? So, you know, these are all super easy Fun conversations, not going to be any struggles out of them. Um, in the words of Wayne and Garth, not. <laughs> that, that is not the case at all. So I'm a little nervous because here's what I know about this series. You're probably going to walk out of every week of this series with more questions than I give you answers. And I want to say to you, number one, you're welcome. And number two, that's okay. It's okay for you to continue to struggle. I hope that there is some peace to be found, some resolution. I hope that we find some biblical answers. But usually, we're going to have more questions. And I think, and I want to say this, none of these questions are simply intellectual questions. Our questions about faith, our questions about God, our questions about scripture are never just intellectual. You may, you may have friends who are not followers of Christ, who are atheist, agnostic, who just don't don't fall into a category. Their questions are not just intellectual. They are holistic questions, emotional questions, relational questions. And so it's okay to have more questions. Now, here's the other piece of that. It's okay to wrestle. It's okay to sit here and after these sermons, these teachings say, I don't know if I agree with that. I would say to you in this church, you don't have to agree with us to be with us. We say that a lot. It's safe. It's safe to dialogue. Here's the second thing that I want you to know jumping into this. These are meant to be interactive, okay? 
Here's what I mean by that. I would love to get follow-up conversation. I would love to get follow-up questions. In fact, I would love that so much that we've set up a way for you to do that. Go ahead and bring up the next slide, Matt. If at any point during this sermon or any sermon for the rest of this series, you're going, I don't know if I buy that, or I got a question about that, or I got something that I want to deal with further into that, you can text. All you got to do, text the word questions first to that number, 24587. Okay, you can text the word questions. You'll get a notification that says, thanks for messaging us. Then you can send, once you're connected, you can send any question you want to follow up. Now, here's what I'm going to try to do. I'm going to try to leave 10 minutes at the end of every service. It's not going to happen. Okay, I'm going to try so that I can interact with those. Most likely what will happen, because you know me and I know me, is next week I'm going to take about the first 5, 10 minutes before we jump into the new sermon to interact with any follow-up questions. Does that make sense? So this is more of a conversation than me preaching at you. Apparently, I have scared the entire front row out of church. So we're going to converse and not preach at you. But today, I want to jump in. I started filtering through the questions we received, and the first one that jumped out at me was this question. This is what somebody wrote. Why does God only reveal himself to a person in the traits that that person possesses? Now, that's a big question. Why does God only reveal himself to a person in the traits that that person possesses. And then they quoted 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 26 and 27. Here's what it says. Go ahead and bring the slide up. It says, to the faithful God, you show yourself faithful. To the blameless, you show yourself blameless. To the pure, you show yourself pure. But to the devious, you show yourself shrewd. So the question was, why does God reveal himself only to the characteristics that someone else is displaying? I think it's a brilliant question. We're going to broaden the question. And then I promise if you wrote that question, we're gonna answer that question directly as a part of this service because I think the broader question is where we have to start. And the broader question is simply this, how does God reveal himself? If we serve a living God who desires for people to be in relationship with him, who even requires for people to be in relationship with him, how does God reveal himself? Now, the assumption that I'm making, the affirmation that I'm making here is this, and we could all say this, If we follow Christ, if we have a faith in this God, we claim faith in a God who often feels hidden to us. That's part of faith, right? We have a trust, a belief in a God who at times feels hidden. Some of you are here and you would say, I don't claim faith in God and this is why. Because I don't know about that. Why would there be a God who wants me to believe in him, but he doesn't reveal himself? It's like the perpetual itch that we can't scratch. Why would he do that? Why wouldn't God do something to reveal himself more deeply? See, it happens all the time. I read of a Christian musician this week who said, I no longer have faith in God. He said, I cannot believe in a God who claims divinity, but does not make himself known publicly. My guess is you've struggled with this. My guess is you have friends who wrestle with this. Maybe it's what happened to a friend of yours. Maybe it's for you. Maybe it's related to specific issues. You say, I don't understand how a church can hold this theological position and God doesn't reveal himself and tell them whether it's right or wrong. I don't know why there's pain, why there's injustice. I don't know why we have to think the scripture is authoritative and God doesn't just tell us. I don't know how science matches up with faith. It seems kind of embarrassing. See, the issue is that there are clear things to think and believe, but we're not sure all the time. Why doesn't God just show us? Why doesn't he make himself known? Why doesn't he, which I used to think as a kid, roll back the clouds and be like, hey, 
I'm not kidding. I'm real. Trust these things. And then put the clouds away and we're all good, right? Like why doesn't he do that? So here's the thing. In our culture, we're seeing this struggle more and more. There was a survey done in 2015 that found about a fifth of the population of adults who had been raised in religious settings now consider themselves atheist, agnostic, or unaffiliated. That's one in five who were raised in a church setting say, I am no longer connected, and it's largely in the millennial population. And for many, what that means is that the burden of proof is now on God. If God wants us to believe in him, he's got to prove it. Why would he insist that we believe in him and then hide from us? Why wouldn't he give us more evidence. Now, that's the affirmation. That's the assumption that there is some hiddenness. We have a faith in a God who often feels hidden. I think we can press this further. If there is some hiddenness to God, and if he requires that we believe in him, why doesn't he help us get there? In fact, let me just blow your mind a little bit. Scripture actually teaches that God has chosen to hide some things about himself from us. Now, some of you just labeled me a heretic. Okay, let me prove this to you. Deuteronomy 29, here's what it says in verse 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed to belong to us and to our children forever that we may follow all the words of this law. Then look at Isaiah 45, verse 15. This is what the prophet says. Truly, he's talking about God. Truly, you are a God who has been hiding himself. I don't know about you. These are bothersome verses to me. God chooses to hide himself. Remember when Jesus is going around and he's preaching and he, like, he heals a demon-possessed man? What's the first thing he says? Don't tell anybody. I don't know much about marketing, but that is bad at it, right? Don't tell anybody. Keep it secret. So here's the question. If God has chosen to hide pieces of himself, elements of himself, parts of himself, where does he hide? Right? Could we find him? I have some theories about this. Actually, really smart people that are smarter than me have theories, and I want to tell you their theories as to where God hides himself. So we're going to go really deep for a minute. Everybody ready? You're awake? I don't believe you. Are you ready? This side is ready. You guys are getting there. Okay. The first place I think God hides himself is in a place that physicists call quantum uncertainty. I know. It's a it's heady word. Here's what one physicist says. Given our present theories of quantum mechanics, some things are absolutely unpredictable to us, hidden behind a veil that we cannot look behind. Some physicists today actually believe that there could be up to 12 dimensions, and many of those dimensions we have no concept of at the microscopic level, at the minimal level, that there are spaces that we will never understand, we will never grasp, and that part of God is hidden in that. I'm losing half of you already. Here's the other part. Some would say that there's a theory of the unknowability of the state of matter. So if there's a microscopic level in the quantum realm, then there's also a huge level in the broadness, the massive scope of the universe, the reality that we can't see into the microscopic, but we also can't understand the larger places. Put most simply, the universe is too big for you to understand completely. And that there's parts of that that we will never grab. The third area, if it's the microscopic, the big picture universe, that it's also a place called time. The time is undefinable. It does not flow. It simply is. One philosopher, William Craig, says, believes that there's a time that transcends time. Is your head hurting yet? There's a time that transcends time. A God time, he calls it, by which all other time is measured. A British astronomer, Sir Frederick Hoyle, said God secretly acts as the at the indeterminate quantum level to direct the world to the future state he desires. Here's what that means. Before time ever existed, before God ever created time, there was a time before time 
the land before time. There was a time before, there were 15 of those movies. There was a time before time where God didn't function within the construct of time that we understand. And so he's never been limited by our understanding of time. These are the realms that philosophers, scientists say, that's the place that we're never going to get. The God can function in those places. So if we're most honest, that doesn't help at all, right? That doesn't help us understand how God reveals himself. We live in a tension. But the question for today, how does God reveal himself? If he's so massive, if he's so intimate that we can't grab those realms, are there areas, are there places where God does make himself known, where God does reveal himself. I want to share a story with you from scripture today, and I want to show you through this story. This is a very close proximity, very personal story about the life of Jesus that I believe spells out for us six really clear ways that I'm going to go through quickly. Somebody somebody heard six points. We're going to be here all day. No, I was fast, first service. But I think this story tells us exactly how God reveals himself to the hearts and the minds of humanity. See, here's where this story starts. Jesus is at a party. How many of you know Jesus loved the party? Amen? Some of you didn't, but you're excited to be in church now. It is the very first story after he's revealed as being the word of God, the son of God in John 1. The scene in John 2 is about his life, and it's about the beginning of his ministry. And Jesus' ministry, by the way, begins with a party. There's a whole other sermon there. If you want to reach your friends, you better throw parties really well. You better throw parties really well. But John 2 starts here. Here's what it says in verse 2. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. This is a crisis for some of you, right? The wine is gone. The wedding can't continue. Now understand, this was not a few-hour wedding. This was not a one-day wedding. These weddings were celebrations that lasted through the week. And so this is a big deal to have run out of wine. And the first place, this is the first way I believe God reveals himself. Jesus' mother comes to him and says, they're out of wine. They have a need for more wine. Some of you are like, I understand, right? That, that's, that's what they understand, what they say. This is, this is a need. The very first place I want to say to you today where you will experience God revealing himself into your life is in the midst of your own needs, the midst of your own places where you recognize I am lacking and I need something that I can't provide for myself. Jesus' mother, she comes to him with her needs. She approaches him from a place of vulnerability, from necessity. She has raised, imagine this lady, she has raised a child she knows to be the son of God, and now she comes to this young man saying, you alone can meet this need. You alone can keep the party going, Jesus. And you know, when I hear people talk to me about not knowing how to find God, about saying, I don't, I don't know where to experience. I don't, I don't feel God in my life. I don't understand why God isn't sh- showing up. The question that I want to start with, the question that I want to ask, if that's your question today, what do you need? What do you need from him? You're saying you don't know why God isn't showing up. Have you named your needs? See, the reality is that usually we are not honest about our needs. Amen? Strong West Virginia culture. Aren't we tough? Aren't we able to function on our own? Aren't we able to keep rolling on our own? See, you know what I mean by this. You could say it this way. We often miss God's presence because we haven't been honest about our circumstance. 
we're missing God's revelation of himself into our life because we're, we're hiding our needs. Let me, let me give you a really good example of this. Yesterday, I had Malia at a soccer tournament, and, and I was away. Now, here's what happens. In the house that I live in, the people that built our house were geniuses, and they built this house in a way that for some reason, there's one corner behind a wall where mice go to die. That's, that's what happens in our house. They don't, they don't die throughout the house in the walls. They die in one space in the house in one corner. Is anybody else's house like that? Is that a normal thing? It doesn't seem normal to me, but these are the dumbest mice in the world because they go to the same place. My, the people that built the house figured this out, and they cut away a slab of the drywall, and they screwed in plexiglass over what someone told me. I missed this opportunity for the dad joke of the year in the first service, the mausoleum. This is where the mice go to die. And so now when we smell dead mice, we can unscrew the plexiglass. We can easily pull them out. We can throw them away. And life is happy in the house again, and it doesn't stink. So here's what happens. I get a call at the soccer tournament from my lovely wife saying, there are two dead mice in the wall. And I said, do you know where the screwdriver is? I don't think I can do it. I think you can. I said, I believe in you. I hate mice, by the way. I think you can do it. And she said, I know. I think maybe I can, but I don't know. I don't want to touch them. I said, there's tongs. We have extra tongs. There's two sets of tongs. Make one set of tongs. Now our mouse tongs. We can designate them. Don't put them back in the kitchen. These are now mouse tongs. And she literally said to me, I think I can do it. And then the follow-up, then the evidence, the revelation of her need. I'm just not sure I want this to be my job. <laughs> to which I said, now I know your need. See, here's the reality for many of us. For many of us, we're saying, God, don't, he isn't showing up in my life. He's, he wasn't there when so-and-so passed away. He let suffering happen. He isn't speaking to me. He doesn't feel present. And what we're actually saying is we're not being honest about the circumstances, the needs in our life. We're blaming God for something when the reality is we're hiding from something else. See, many of us, maybe we're trying to get God to deal with a part of our life, but it's not the real part that he's ready to deal with. You're talking about your job when it really should be about your relationships or, or we're rebelling against God. Every one of us at one time or another have been in places where we chose to move away from God. And then we say, why isn't God showing up? And it's because we haven't named our true need or we're hurt by things. Have we been honest about the need for God's presence in the midst of the deepest hurt in our lives? Mary comes to Jesus and says, they've run out of wine. There's a need. Look at verse four. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, I just got to tell you, this verse bothers me, right? This verse bothers me because Jesus' mother comes to him and says, son, they have a need. I've raised you. I know you can do this stuff. Do you ever wonder what miracles Jesus did when it was just him as a little boy? Like, did he ever just kind of like run across the water and nobody's looking, I'm gonna go. Maybe Mary saw it. Like I, but she comes to him and says, they've got a need. And then it bothers me that Jesus looks at her and goes, why do you, why, my hour's not yet come. I don't know if he's being playful or not. I think he is. I kind of like that, that he's maybe like looking at his mom like, what do you think I can do about it? And she literally says, just do whatever he tells you. But he says, not yet. Not yet. The time is not yet. And this is the second way we start to see how God reveals himself to us. See, it's the fact that sometimes when God chooses to reveal himself, the way that he does that is he actually chooses to restrain himself. He actually chooses not to act at this time. Now, this sounds so paradoxical. I'm trying to answer the question, how does God reveal himself? And I'm saying to you, well, sometimes he doesn't. 
It sounds crazy, but listen, don't miss this. God is actually revealing more of himself in his own restraint by not stepping into our every need, by not stepping in to our every desire, to our every whim. When God chooses to wait, when God chooses to say no, when God chooses not to act, he's actually showing more of himself in those moments. I know it doesn't make sense. The writer Dostoevsky, he called it this. He said, it's the miracle of restraint that God would make the choice to curb his own abilities, to put his own abilities aside. I don't like this restraint because I want God to prove himself, right? Philip Yancey, the writer, he says, my faith suffers from too much freedom, too many temptations to disbelieve. At times, I want God to overwhelm me, to overcome my doubts with certainty, to give final proof of his existence, his concern. I want a God without ambiguity, one to whom I can point for the sake of my doubting friends. Don't we want that? But then he goes on, he says this, The more I get to know Jesus, the more impressed I am by the miracle of restraint. More amazing is his refusal to perform and to overwhelm. God's terrible insistence on human freedom is so absolute that he granted us the power to live as though he didn't exist, to spit in his face, even to crucify him. It's a miracle that the Son of God restrained himself in those moments. He says, although power can force obedience, only love can summon a response of love. And you know what, dad's in the room, you know this. If you've ever taught your child to swim, you know exactly what restraint looks like because you got in the pool and you looked at your child and you said, swim to me, I'll catch you. Swim to me, I'll catch you, trust me. And they began to kick and they began to swim and you did what every single dad did. You stepped back and you lied to their face (laughs) until they came to you. Because you restrained yourself. You stepped away in order for them to live more, to swim more, to find that they could do something. See, sometimes, friends, God reveals himself in your life by giving you an answer of no, by giving you an answer of wait, by choosing not to act. And it's beautiful. Look at verse 6. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. I love this moment because it's one of those details in scripture that's like, why are they talking about how many gallons this holds? Why does this, why does this, this, this matter? But see, here's the thing. Before Jesus acts, before there's any miraculous action, the author interjects something about God and, and the way that he's revealed. It's the third way. God reveals himself, and in this verse we see it, in the midst of our circumstances, See, it's not just in our need, but it's also in our circumstances. Right in the middle of this story, right in the place where this wedding is about to fall apart, we hit a pause button and we say, oh, by the way, there were six stone water jars there, and altogether they held like 120 to 180 gallons of water. Now back to the story. See, sometimes I think we're living our lives looking for God, going, God, why aren't you showing up? Why aren't you showing up? And God's going, hang on, there's a stone water jar. You have no idea what's coming. I'm about to do something you haven't even noticed because you haven't looked at your circumstances. See, friends, if you want to see God reveal himself in your life, if you want to know when your friends are open to good news about Jesus, look for pivotal circumstances. Look for moments when things are falling apart. Look for moments when relationships are breaking down because those circumstances are often the place where someone is most vulnerable and God steps in. See, most of us as humans run from the hard stuff. We run from crisis. We run from loneliness, from difficulty, from pain. But you know what I find about the people who most encounter Jesus on a regular basis? You know those people, the annoying people that are like always happy Christians? that know and talk to Jesus all the time. They've learned this principle. See, the principle is this. To experience God, we need to embrace our circumstances. 
to experience the revelation of God in our lives, we need to experience right where we are. Do me a favor, just think right now, just think of a circumstance that you're facing. Some of you are like, I got 25. Which one do you want me to pick? One, I don't care, just pick one. Whether it's financial stress or fear, loneliness, relational brokenness. And I want you to think about how you're approaching it. What's been your approach? Has it been to run from it? Has it been to get mad about it? Has it been to, la- to, to lash out about it? Has it been to distract yourself from it? Now, I want you to think about the simple question. What would it look like to embrace the situation, the circumstance? To say, I don't know what the answer is, but I'm going to embrace it and live fully into it. I'm going to live in such a way that I can tell you what it smells like. I can tell you what it feels like. I can tell you how it sounds. I can tell you what it's doing to my mind. Because here's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12 when he embraces his circumstance, right? Paul said he had a thorn in his flesh, something that just ate at him, whether it was a sickness, a disease, a sexual sin, a struggle. We don't know what it was. But here's what he says three times in verse, verse 2 Corinthians 12, verse 8. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power, God says, my power is made perfect in your weakness. In the midst of your circumstance, you're going to see my power, God says. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. How weird would we be if we started bragging about our weaknesses? I am the worst basketball player you've ever seen. Isn't that cool? That's my weakness. That's who I am, right? I'm getting old. My knees don't work. Isn't it awesome what God's going to do? See, that's embracing our circumstances. And that's where God reveals himself. Let's go back to the story of Jesus. Jesus said to the servants, verse 7, fill those jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Now just pause, because those servants had a choice. They could have said, no, 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 she, she said wine. They're out of wine, not water. Dummy. Right? Like they could, they could have said, why are you telling us to fill them with water? We don't need more water. We've got water. We need wine. Wine. We know you're Jesus, you're Jewish, but this is, this is wine we need. But he tells them, go fill the stone jars. And they don't respond in that way. They actually obey him. This is another critical piece of how God reveals himself to us. You and I both know this. At points, listen, don't miss this. At points in your life, at points in my life, you have walked out of your house. You have gotten into a car. You have turned the ignition. And you have driven to places fully aware that where you were going, what you were going to be doing, where you were taking yourself was not a place that God would have you to go. I don't know what that looked like for you, but I know that you turned the radio up. You were not praying because you consciously in your mind were saying, I don't want God to go with me to this place. I don't want him to go with me to this party. You were in college, right? I don't want him to go to these places. I want to go and enjoy myself. You consciously made decisions where you did not want God to be a part of it. And on the other side of that, you were not surprised when God didn't show up. I can't believe God didn't show up at this party where I was at. I can't believe God wasn't a part of my sinful behaviors. I can't believe God was not showing up and revealing himself in the midst of my bad choices. None of us are surprised by that. But here's the thing. See, sometimes, sometimes we found ourselves after those moments questioning, going, God, where are you now? Why aren't you revealing yourself in the midst of my brokenness? God, why aren't you showing up in the midst of my loss? See, the reality is this. Sometimes our disobedience limits God's presence. So the fourth way that God reveals himself to us is within our obedience. 
Sometimes God will choose to reveal more of himself to you when we tend and we choose to obey the things he's told us. I think this matters. I think if we really want God's revelation in our life, God's presence in our life, sometimes we need to hear what he's saying to us, which just might be, this might be God speaking. You wanna know what I want you to do? Be obedient. Start obeying the things that I've spelled out for you. I've given you a lot to do. I want you to have my attitude, my mindset. I want your life to look like mine. I want you to practice relationships the way that I told you to practice relationships. Spend your time the way that I've shown you how to spend your time, your money, the way you serve others. Live into the things that I've told you, that I've shown you, and then watch when you start obeying me the way I will reveal more of myself into your life. And this goes back to that first question that was asked on that card. See, 2 Samuel 22 says this, to the faithful, you show yourself faithful. To the blameless, you show yourself blameless. To the pure, you show yourself pure. But to the devious, you show yourself shrewd. So the question asked was, why does God only reveal himself to a person the traits that that person possesses? Here's what I would say. I don't think he does. I think what that verse is talking about is actually our obedience. It's actually saying when we live lives, I, I, I tell our kids this all the time. If I was teaching youth ministry, I would share this. The decisions you make, middle schoolers, high schoolers, don't miss this. The decisions you make now will determine the value and the quality of your life years from now. When we live into obedience, we will see God pour more of himself out to us. Does this make sense? Are you with me? 11 o'clock, everybody's still awake. Okay, a couple more and then we're done. Verse eight. Then he told them, so they filled the the stone jars. Now, draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And I think they knew, but they didn't really know. You know what I mean? Like, I think they were like, we put water, but now it's red. It's, It's like good wine. Like, I don't understand what's going on. And then it says the master called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. Isn't it awesome, by the way, it's totally tangent, that Jesus didn't make wine, he made good wine. This is a beautiful moment. And this is the fifth way God reveals himself. Now, let me let me be honest about this before I tell you what it is. Typically, if you're talking to someone and they doubt God because he doesn't reveal himself, this is the way that they're really talking about. If you have friends who are atheists and say, well, I just don't believe in God because God hasn't revealed himself. If someone says to you, why doesn't God reveal himself? What they're not asking is, I've been really obedient to the commands of scripture and I don't know why God hasn't shown up in my life. They're not saying that. They're not saying, I've surrendered to all my circumstances and I still don't feel God revealing himself. They're not asking about that. What they're asking about is this one way that God sometimes chooses, I believe, chooses to reveal himself, and that is through his miracles. Sometimes God chooses to reveal himself in the midst of supernatural, miraculous things, things where he steps in, things where he alters, things like time and space, physicality, everything that's normal becomes abnormal. He does that here. He takes six stone jars, and I don't know if it was Yoda-like. I don't know if he stirred it. I don't know if he spit in it. I don't know what he did, but something turned that water miraculously into wine. And you know what? Some of us need miracles in our life, and we pray for those things because we serve of God who can do it. But you know what else? I think the problem with this, and, and I think it's part of the reason God doesn't do a whole lot of miracles today, because we're a culture who fixates on the supernatural. 
See, every movie that comes out, every book that's written, every new story that emerges, oftentimes today is fixated on the supernatural. And often, if God were to show up, number one, a miracle doesn't happen every day if it's a miracle. Amen? It has to be kind of random and assorted. But number two, if God were doing miracles on our every whim, we would fixate more on the miracle and less on the God who did the miracle. And that's what happened with Jesus. Jesus said, you see these signs and wonders, but you're not following me. One writer says this, in my opinion, miracles will never confound a realist. It's not miracles that bring a realist to faith. A true realist, if he's not a believer, will always find in himself the strength and ability not to believe in miracles as well. So you can do a miracle, and we are master explainers, right? We can explain it away. Some of you have already experienced the miraculous, but you're so intelligent, you explained it away. Look how smart you are. You miss God's miracle. See, he says, if a miracle stands before the realist as an irrefutable fact, he will sooner doubt his own senses than admit the fact. See, Jesus revealed himself in this moment in a miraculous way. Look at verse 11. We're going to finish this story up. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. See, the last way that God reveals himself is pretty simple, and it's, it's going to sound like common sense, but I want you to get this. If I want to get to know you, what's the best way to get to know you? This is interactive, right? We can, we can talk back. What do you think? What's the best way to get to know you? Sit down and talk to you. Hey, tell me about yourself. See, the last way that God reveals himself is through his own self-revelation. God actually desires that we would know him. God actually says, I want you to know more about me. Theologians see this in, in, in about three different ways. First of all, they, they would say God has revealed himself through creation, right? That God has self-revealed himself through what's called general revelation. This is the big phrase for this, that when we look at the created order of things, when we look at the harmony of the way creation works, that when we look at human consciousness, that you could be in the most primitive tribe hidden away from the world for centuries. If you go to that primitive tribe, they still have some system, some sense of absolute morality, that some things are ultimately wrong, eternally wrong, and you shouldn't do it. And, and theologians would say, that's creation, that's general revelation, that God put into the human design some sense of right and wrong, some sense of wonder and awe, some sense of imagination and destiny that when we look at the world around us, it doesn't matter where you are in the world, humans have always, always started with, oh my gosh, there must be something higher than us. That there's a point where God has revealed himself through creation. The second way that they would say, if you want to get to know God, here's, here's how this plays out. It's through biblical inspiration. So not only do we have general revelation through creation, but we have biblical inspiration. I know this is kind of like boring phrases. Hang with me. Biblical inspiration takes us back to the Deuteronomy 29 that says the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed to belong to us and to our children forever that we may follow all the words of the law. All the words of the law. Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is boring and dull. No, it doesn't. It says it's alive and active. Right? That if we want to get to know someone, we actually talk to them. You know what's beautiful? God has talked to us through the scriptures. And so if we want to get to know this God, if we want to, people come to me, I don't feel God in my life. I don't know how to, how to handle, I, I, God's not showing up. God's not talking to me. Well, friend, let me ask you a question. This is what I always ask. When's the last time you sat down and just meditated on his word? When did you just spend time with him? Well, I'm too busy. Are you? Show me your phone usage. Well, just ignore that 80% of my time on Facebook. Just don't worry about that. 
See, we're taking in the revelation of a hundred of our friends on Facebook more regularly than we're taking in the revelation of God from his own word in scripture. And we need that. We need that biblical inspiration. Then there's this third piece, and I would say this is third. This is hierarchical, right? There's what's called special revelation. Special revelation is when God chooses to step in and speak into your life that we serve a living God who will speak into you. Now listen, I don't know how many of you have ever heard God audibly. I don't think I ever have, okay? So the way that God speaks is just as Scripture tells us in this still, small voice that speaks to our hearts, to our minds, that speaks through the right relationships that we have around us. And by the way, anytime God speaks to us or we think God is speaking to us. By the way, you learn in our huddles when we disciple people, we practice. What does it mean to hear what God is saying to you? The two questions we come back to over and over. What is God saying to you? What are you gonna do about it? But the way that we practice that is we echo back to biblical inspiration because you know what I've had? I've had people come to me and say, hey, I was praying. God told me to tell you. Okay, let's see what you got. That's where I go. That's where I'm like, okay, what did God tell you to tell me? And then instantly, They'll say, well, God told me to tell you that, that you're supposed to give me $1,000. Oh, really? Man, God didn't tell me. Sorry, I don't do that yet. See, there's this sense of we have to filter this back through the other pieces. Does this echo what Scripture says? Does this echo the advice of godly wisdom, godly counsel? Is this pushing us in a direction that doesn't exist? You cannot function in your relationship with God only assuming one piece of these. You can't think that only special revelation is the thing that's gonna help you find God. You go back to scripture. You go back to what the word of God says. You go back, does this fit with the plan of God in the world around us? So here's, here's the question. How does God reveal himself? I've given you six ways. But here's my question for you as we start to close. Many of us are asking, how does God, God, God reveal himself? Why doesn't God show up? Why doesn't God make himself known? Here's my question for you. Would you respond if he did? Would you actually obey if God revealed himself? Would you actually respond to the things that God might tell you? See, I believe this. God cannot enter your reality without shifting it. We, want, we say we want more of God in our life, but oftentimes we don't want God to shift our life. And God, when he chooses to reveal himself to you, will not enter into your reality without changing it. Once he enters your space, you will, listen to me, you will inescapably be changed. You will be overwhelmed. You will be deprived of your own autonomy. See, God loves you. Jesus loves you just the way you are, but he refuses to leave you just the way you are. That was, should have been an amen. That's a good one. I stole that one. God loves you just the way you are, but he refuses to leave you just as you are. When he begins to reveal himself, you will be changed. And so my question is, you say you long for God's revelation. My question is, would you respond when he reveals himself? And then the follow-up, and the band can go ahead and come. What if God is right in the middle of the places where you feel like he's unknown? What if he's in the gaps, whether that's the quantum uncertainty, the vastness of creation, or the deep, dark, intimate parts of your life? See, here's what I know. Listen, don't miss this. God is okay with tension. God is okay with gaps. There is, you will not find in the scripture throughout the entire 66 books, you will never find one instance of God going, hey, guys, listen, I'm sorry. I know you misunderstood what I was doing, but let me explain there's no place in scripture where it says, and the Lord said, let me explain myself, please. He doesn't say that. Because God feels no need to offer an explanation. 
The beautiful part of this whole story that we're reading, and this is the one other way that I didn't give you that God chooses to reveal himself. You know how he reveals himself? He goes to the wedding. He goes to the party. He's present. He's in the place where life is happening. He was at the wedding in the midst of the joy, the celebration, the rejoicing, the party. But he also, listen, he also went to the cross. So he went to the place of suffering and grief and death and sorrow and brokenness. See, God, Jesus is present, revealing himself with us at all levels, in all places, from your greatest joy to your greatest heartache. C.S. Lewis said that we long for God to show up. We want God to make himself known. We beg for God to invade. And then he said about that, he said, God will invade, but I wonder whether people who ask God to interfere openly and directly in our world quite realize what it will be like when he starts to do that. Listen, he said, when that happens, when God shows up and invades your life the way you really want him to, it is, and I love C.S. Lewis, it is the end. When the author walks on the stage, the play is over. For this time, it will be God striking irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. It will be too late at this point when God answers that prayer to choose your side. If humans find God, it's not going to be where he's chosen to hide, but rather where, he was, where he's chosen to reveal himself on a cross. See, as we close today, I want to say to you, no matter where you are, if you're at the wedding and you're rejoicing, life is full of peace and love and excitement and grace, then God bless you because he is present there. And you know what? He might just keep the party going. But if you're at the place where you're looking at the cross going, this this feels like suffering. This just feels like sorrow. All I've got is loss. All I've got is brokenness. All I've got is grief. He is just as present there. And as we close today, my prayer with you is that you would allow God to reveal himself in all of these ways. As we close, before we sing, I wanna pray with you through these six ways that I've told you God reveals himself. And I wonder if as we reflect, as we pray, God might speak into you and say, this is the place where I wanna reveal myself to you today. God might say, I know you want a miracle, but I want you to understand my restraint. And God may say, I've been restraining myself for a while, but it's time for a miracle. But we're gonna pray through this. Let's pray together.